I'm seeing my patients. They've been through months of chemo, radiation. They're maybe now taking, let's say, tamoxifen. And I'm like, see you in six months. And to a patient, you know, that's like who's been through so much, so many in- intensive medical visits to say, I don't need to come back for six months. Like, it's very disconcerting. And as the oncologist, I'm like, well, you don't really have to come here, you know? Um, And I feel like survivorship care, there's such an opportunity. We can do such a better job. Take a journal and just like whatever thought is coming, like it's almost like a brain dump, you know, before you go to bed and then taking some deep cleansing breaths after that can really help calm the mind down so that you can start. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. During the month of June, we celebrate the nearly 17 million Americans who have bravely and successfully battled cancer to earn the designation survivor. Whether someone is still undergoing treatment or has long since won their battle against cancer, June is an opportunity to celebrate all cancer survivors. Nationally recognized as Cancer Survivor Month, June is an opportunity for all 16.9 million cancer survivors across the country to celebrate their milestones and to recognize those who have supported them along the way. It is also an opportunity for those who have not been affected by cancer to learn and understand the challenges that accompany survivorship. This year, whether a survivor or not, there are many opportunities to embrace National Cancer Survivor Month. Dr. Amy Herman Commander is a breast oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. She's the director of the breast oncology and survivorship at Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham in Newton, Wellesley Hospital and Medical Director of the Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham. She's on the board of Ellie Fund, which provides support to women with breast cancer in Massachusetts. She has a passion for improving the quality of life and outcome of cancer survivors through lifestyle interventions, including exercise, diet, and mind-body strategies. In collaboration with Dr. Beth Frades and Dr. Michelle Tollefson, she has launched Paving the Path to Wellness, a lifestyle medicine-based program for breast cancer survivors. Recently, Dr. Commander, Dr. Beth Frades, and Dr. Michelle Tollefson have published the Paving the Path Wellness Workbook. Dr. Simran Malotra is a triple board certified physician in internal medicine, hospice and palliative care, and lifestyle medicine. She's a member of the ACLM's Women's Health Member Interest Group and serves as a co-chair of the Breast Cancer Subcommittee alongside Dr. Amy Commander, a BRAC1 provider with a strong family history of breast and female reproductive cancers. She underwent a risk-reducing bilateral mastectomy and total hysterectomy in 2020. Outside of her palliative care practice, she recently started Coach Simram MD, a platform she uses to empower, educate, and guide women, particularly at a high risk for cancer with or without genetic mutations, and a powerful impact that positive lifestyle changes can have on their quality of life and even longevity. Let's welcome both Dr. Amy Commander and Dr. Simran Malotra. Let's start with defining what cancer survivor is. Dr. Commander, how do you feel about this term? First of all, I just want to thank you for inviting both of us to be guests on your podcast to address this really important topic. We're really so honored to be here and bring awareness to Cancer Survivor Month. So you ask a really important question as we launch our discussion, how does one define the term cancer survivor? And actually, the National Cancer Institute has provided us with a definition And an individual is considered a cancer survivor from the time of diagnosis through the balance of his or her life. Every survivorship experience is unique, and these individuals face different types of challenges along the way. I do just want to acknowledge that some individuals do find it difficult to use that term survivor. For example, 
Thankfully, due to so many great advances we have in cancer treatment, many individuals who do have advanced cancer or who are living with cancer, thankfully are living for many years. So they may not identify as much with the word survivor. Maybe refer to them as living with cancer. Another term that's being used more commonly is metaviver or thriver. So I think all of these terms should be part of the discussion because some individuals don't completely identify with the term survivor. But regardless, I'm so grateful that the month of June is an opportunity to celebrate all of these individuals and the challenges they face. Thank you for clarifying that because some people can feel offended with the use of some terms. But for us, the rest of us who perhaps have never gone through this cancer diagnosis and treatment, it's important to understand how we can be sensitive to loved ones who perhaps have undergone this or are facing a cancer sphere. Why is it important, Dr. Malotra, to have the month of June as a time for us to acknowledge survivors? I think that's a great question. You know, I'm a palliative care physician and a daughter of a two-time breast cancer survivor. So I've seen cancer up close and personal, as has Amy. And so I'm sure we can tell you tons of stories of what our patients go through when they're dealing with a cancer diagnosis and treatment. Um, So I just think it's amazing that we even have a month to celebrate millions of people, not just in this country, but also the people in the rest of the world that have gone through a cancer diagnosis, come on the other side, or like Amy said, are just chronically living with cancer. And not only do I think we should give them recognition during this month, but I think we should recognize their caregivers because cancer doesn't just affect a person, it affects the whole family and their whole tribe. And it really takes a village. I'm sure Amy will also mention that it takes a whole village to really care for someone that's going through a diagnosis of cancer. Like you said, I think it's a time to bring awareness to what living with a diagnosis of cancer looks like. But when most people think about cancer, they think about chemo, they think about radiation, they think about surgery. That's kind of like the face of cancer. But what a lot of people don't know about and don't witness and don't see is what you mentioned is what does survivorship look like? And it carries its own unique struggles and challenges. And so I think this is a great month to talk about some of those things. And one of the ways to do that in my personal way is really to lift up some of these cancer survivors and to share their stories out into the world because stories are the way that we all connect. And um, what I've learned through my personal experience is you know, when you share words or a distinction or a piece of your story, you just don't know who's listening on the other side and you don't know how you might've just changed the trajectory of their life. You know, they might go talk to their doctor about something that's been bothering them. They might go get that screening mammogram or screening colonoscopy. um, And without even knowing it, like here, you've changed someone's entire life. Um, So I think stories are just so empowering. And this is the month um, to, to really share those stories. That's a very good point. I think of how brave the individuals are when they come on the podcast or when they, you know, speak in public or share their story in in any platform, really. It takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to be open and to say, this is where I am. This is what I went through, uh, which can sometimes feel like a roller coaster ride. And I've wondered, I wonder if each either of you doctors could answer this. I've often wondered if survivors live with a sense of, you know, maybe perhaps some anxiety or depression of feeling, you know, like, why did this happen to me? Some sort of emotion that continues to sort of affect them. And perhaps that is why support and acknowledgement is also important for them. Yeah, I'm happy to address that first. And I welcome Simran's thoughts as well. But first of all, Simran, I love everything you said. And certainly agree 100% that we should acknowledge the caregivers and the family and the support system for these individuals. And they should be recognized as well, since um, they are all key to supporting individuals as they go through cancer treatment and survivorship. Um, In terms of your question, Maya, you're absolutely right. Um, Unfortunately, our patient population, you know, I'm a breast oncologist, but I also care for other individuals with other diagnoses of cancer. And Um, various kinds of psychological distress are unfortunately very common after a cancer diagnosis, whether that's 
anxiety, depression, insomnia, um, fear of recurrence, which is way up there. These are all issues that our patients unfortunately commonly experience. And so it's very important for us as, you know, I'm an oncologist, um, you know, Dr. Baholtra is a palliative care physician, but also coaches many um, cancer survivors and just really thinking about how can we support them, provide that um, key support, whether that's through mind-body interventions, cognitive behavioral therapy, all kinds of interventions to help um, individuals cope with the uncertainty and stress of a cancer diagnosis. Uh, Dr. Malotra, I was just thinking, and I forgive me if I mispronounce your last name, I did mention in your bio that you were a previvor. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story? Because I'm thinking that as you probably would fall into that category of survivor or how different is it for someone like yourself who addressed the issue immediately as a, because it was that genetic component in your family history as opposed to someone who um, went through the treatments, diagnosis and then treatments? Um, so I'll, I might have to come back another time to share the, like the full on story, but I'll give you the reader's digest version. Um, but essentially when I was 13, my mom was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. She was 33 at the time. Um, and that was like over 20 years ago. And since then we have uncovered several women. I'm South Asian, um, by background. And so a lot of talking about cancer and death and things like that are very taboo. Um, but over the years, we've uncovered many women who have had either breast or ovarian cancer in her family. Um, and so when I was pursuing my medical training, um, you know, I, I spoke with some of my colleagues and they really encouraged me to tell my mom to get genetic testing again, even though she had gotten it over 20 years ago at the time of her diagnosis and it was negative. Um, so about seven or eight years ago, um, maybe a little bit more than that now, but she got genetic testing again, um, and this time was found to have uh, the BRCA1 or BRCA1 genetic mutation. Um, and basically, you know, that's the Angelina Jolie mutation for people that don't know, but it radically increases your lifetime risk of um, breast cancer by, I think, over 80%, uh, as well as ovarian cancer by up to like 40 to 50%. So, Essentially, um, fast forward to 2020, um, after years of surveillance, having my kids back to back, nursing, you know, kind of closing up that chapter as fast as I could um, at the recommendations of my oncologist, I um, ended up pursuing a bilateral, a preventative bilateral double mastectomy. Um, I chose not to have reconstruction, so I had flat closure um, along with a total hysterectomy. Um, at the age of 32. Um, so now I'm, I'm on hormone replacement. I'm, I'm uh, almost, um, two years out of surgery. Um, and that, you know, pre-vivorship is, is very similar, um, in some ways to survivorship. Um, there's a lot of unique challenges that you just don't know what you're going to face, um, after surgery and, um, <laughs> you kind of hope for the best. And, and so I'm going through some of those things now. And, uh, so some of the things that you're talking about, this fear and this anxiety comes up for me personally, and it brings me back to the story and, um, trying to find meaning and purpose, um, in, in my story. And, and the way I've done that is how can I thinking back to 25 year old me, who had so many questions about like, what can I do to reduce my risk of cancer? Um, you know, thinking back to that girl and thinking about how many women there are right now in that very moment. And I'm here eight years out on the other side of surgery, found lifestyle medicine, found all these empowering tools to help me reduce my risk. And so anytime I have a hard day or a bad day, I come back to that. Like, this is the purpose. This is the meaning of my story and my hardships is to maybe lessen someone else's pain and help them on their journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And yes, you'll have to come back to share that story. Thank you for sharing that and, and explaining what it all means to you and why you're using this platform as well to encourage other people. So in many ways, I guess June could be also a way to encourage people to screen and to test. Okay, let's talk about lifestyle medicine, Dr. Commander. Um, I often wonder too, I when, and you hear this like in the movies and other things you see in the media that people survive cancer and you think they live happily ever after and then that's it. 
But that's not true. There are there's continued care that has to take place in order for that cancer survivor to continue to thrive in life. So can you tell us how they can use lifestyle medicine to optimize their overall health and well-being and their future outcomes? Thank you for that important question. And certainly, Simran and I both have a strong interest in this area. We came to it through different ways, but we definitely share this interest as you do as well. Just highlighting again that you noted in your intro that at present in the United States, there's close to 17 million cancer survivors, which is amazing. And that number is just going up. In fact, by 2030, that number is expected to reach 22 million. So certainly, caring for individuals who with a history of cancer, it's a team approach. Like I'm an oncologist, Simran's a palliative care physician, but we need to collaborate with primary care physicians, nutritionists, physical therapists, social workers, psychologists, physiatrists. I can go on and on and on. I'm sorry if I'm leaving important specialties out, but it really is a team effort. A multidisciplinary approach is really needed. And one of the key aspects of care for individuals with a history of cancer is really thinking about prevention of chronic disease and health promotion. That's sort of one of the number one areas that we must focus on for individuals who have been through cancer treatment and acknowledging that many of these treatments can have effect on our heart and lungs and other parts of the body. Therefore, just a quick intro. How did I get into lifestyle medicine? Honestly, I was a breast oncologist at the Mass General Cancer Center. One day I see a flyer about a lifestyle medicine conference being hosted by Harvard Medical School in June, actually. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I think I'll go to this conference. I was interested because it was a lot about diet and exercise, which is you know hobbies of mine. And I went to the conference and I was like really blown away because a lot of this information, I see Simran nodding her head, like about, you know, the evidence behind exercise and how we should prescribe it to patients and the benefits of plant-based nutrition, et cetera. I did not learn that in medical school or in residency or in my oncology fellowship or as an early attending. So I was learning all this information at that conference and I'm like, wow, this has so much power for my patients with breast cancer. I really need to learn more and and that Dr. Frady's there too. So that was helpful. So anyway, that's why I think all these tools from lifestyle medicine, the six pillars, which you know we can talk about, really each of them have so much relevance to individuals with all types of cancer at any stage. And I think this has so much power and I'm really excited that I had the opportunity to meet you and Simran because we're all, we have the shared interest in how can we bring these tools to help um, these individuals. And Simran, I'd love to hear your comments about this as well. I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I think um, to give your listeners, Maya, the biggest uh, bang for their buck, I would love to just dive right in um, and and talk about some of these pillars. Sure. Um, because like, like Amy said, I mean, I only came to this because of my own health issues. I had never heard about lifestyle as medicine um, before I, I was diagnosed with my genetic mutation. And it has completely blown me out of the water. I wish I could have learned about it earlier. Um, but now I know about it. And now, you know, look at everything that we're all doing. So it's wonderful. Okay. Thank you for that. So let's talk about nutrition. How do you speak with cancer survivors after they've gone through all their treatments? Yeah, I mean, I I think to kind of echo what Amy said earlier, um, I've met personally and professionally met many people going through cancer in the early stages, in the later stages, and on the other side into survivorship. And excuse the pun, but literally every person I've met is hungry to know what they can do to either reduce their risk if they're a pre-viver like me, but if they're a survivor, how can I reduce my risk of recurrence? And I think nutrition and food is like probably the most empowering way because it's something that we all do every single day, you know, multiple times a day. And so educating people on the cancer fighting properties of not any fancy supplements or anything, but just simply on like basic supermarket foods like broccoli and garlic, it really gives them back their the control that they're looking for. And I think that's what it comes down to is you were talking about the fear and the anxiety. A lot of these people 
want to be able to know that they're doing something actively to reduce their risk. And so I think nutrition is a major key in that. I think all the major cancer organizations agree that focusing on a plant-forward diet is the best way to reduce your risk of not only primary prevention, but also recurrence of cancer. So for me, the way I break it down to people is I just tell them to eat the rainbow, right? So the more colors, the more colorful foods that you're eating, the more cancer-fighting nutrients you're taking in with every bite. And so to break it down even further, what that means is more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, legumes, beans, and really focusing. You know, I like to think about it from an abundance standpoint, like focusing on all the things hundreds of thousands of foods in the plant kingdom that you can incorporate more of as opposed to focusing on all the things you have to limit or avoid. But for the purposes of your audience, really, when it comes to cancer risk reduction, that means reducing ultra processed foods, packaged foods, fast foods, red and processed meats. Those are really the types of foods that we recommend to at least try to limit. Um, And alcohol, of course, is its own topic (laughs) under this. Do you want to add anything, Amy? I know we both have a shared interest in talking about nutrition, which I agree with everything you said. I mean, in my clinic visits every day, I feel like I'm talking about nutrition all day long. And it's definitely an interest of mine, which I did not learn much about in medical school, but you know, certainly taken this on as my own interest to learn more and dive into the literature. And I just want to give a shout out. And I know Simran's going to nod her head as well. If your listeners are like, where can I learn more? What are some great resources that are evidence-based? Because let's be honest, there are constantly all kinds of headlines out there making all kinds of claims about eat this to prevent breast cancer or don't eat this or whatever. And it's really hard when you're a layperson reading the news and whatever's on the internet to make sense of it all. The American Institute of Cancer Research AICR is their website, has lots of evidence-based tools. Really, a lot of it's focused on nutrition. Everything Simran just said is very much, there's lots of articles and resources about that and actually information about physical activity too, which we'll get to. But I think that's a great resource. Simran, I'm sure you could share many more, but that's just the first one that comes to mind. So I'll go ahead and add that link to the show notes. But I also wanted to add that you, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has a lot of great resources and I don't know how available they are to other people. I mean, I think that my top three, when I think about resources that I tell people about are AICR, ACLM and PCRM, you get great recipes on AICR and PCRM's website and the handouts are available on ACLM's website for anybody. So they can definitely look into that. To address your last comment, Maya, about particular foods for cancer, when I'm asked that question, I usually tell people the best foods to fight cancer, the best whole plant foods to fight cancer are the ones that you're actually going to (laughs) eat. So the best and first approach is to make a list of all the foods that you already love, whole plant-based foods that you already love, and find a way to incorporate more of those. But when we talk about like which foods in particular are worth mentioning when it comes to cancer, I think the king and queen are the cruciferous vegetables, especially when we talk about breast cancer. They have a very potent phytonutrient in there known as sulforaphane, which has some great properties. The allium family, onion, garlic in particular, has great anti-cancer properties Berries. Uh, Berries are very rich in antioxidants. As you mentioned, antioxidants are really important to neutralize those free radicals, which can cause cell damage, which can then lead to cancer. And then Indian. So I would have to mention turmeric, you know, turmeric has a compound in there known as curcumin. Um, which, you know, has been shown in many studies, but also for many, many years has been used um, in Southeast Asian cooking and is very great for cancer risk reduction, I think. And then, of course, soy is another. The only thing I'll mention about soy is that you really want to focus on whole food soy. So things like edamame and tempeh and tofu with this whole fad of veganism and plant-based foods. Right now, there's a lot of processed vegan junk food, which has processed soy in it. And so you really want to try to avoid that sort of soy. 
Yes. And I'm glad you also mentioned PCRM because having access to those recipes makes it easier even for the, the other people that are supporting the cancer survivor, because I'm assuming that sometimes it can be a little difficult to do all of this at home. I love that Simran is really emphasizing eat the rainbow, eat the fruits and vegetables you like, you know, and she cited all the benefits of certain, you know, broccoli, et cetera. And another important point is eat food, eat real food, supplements, supplements don't cut it. Okay. And the AICR states this very clearly as well. Supplements do not prevent cancer and supplements do not prevent cancer recurrence. So there's a lot of claims out there, drink this every day or take this every day. But those really, to be honest, the evidence supports eating real food. And I see someone nodding her head. And I just want to, I think that's a really important point to make that that's the best way to get all these nutrients into your body. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. (laughs) There's a lot of people trying to sell cures and magic pills. So I agree with that. That's a good point, though. And I'm glad both of you have brought up the idea that we shouldn't necessarily rely or focus on supplements, but also that we can fall into the trap of consuming plant-based processed foods, which can be just as bad because the preservatives and the additives that are found, they're not the healthiest and they're probably deficient when it comes to nutrients. Let's talk about the role of exercise, Dr. Commander. That's another important pillar of lifestyle medicine. How is exercise important for cancer survivors? Thank you for asking that question. You know, that's what I love to talk about. So yeah, so physical activity is another key pillar of lifestyle medicine. And certainly physical activity is important for all of us, you know, all Americans, but in particular, very important for our cancer survivor population. And exercise is safe for cancer survivors. I think that's an important thing to note if an individual is listening to this podcast and not sure what he or she can do safely. That's where perhaps seeing a physical therapist or a physiatrist may be helpful in terms of developing a safe exercise plan. But The American College of Sports Medicine, since we're into listing resources, has some great resources specifically focused on exercise and oncology and has outlined some very clear guidelines for how much exercise cancer survivors should strive to do and what the benefits are. And just to try to make it easy and simplistic, really the ultimate goal, and I recognize People may need to take steps to get there, but the ultimate goal is really 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity each week. And what does moderate mean? That Simran and I could go for a walk outside right now for 30 minutes and have a fun conversation and we're getting our heart rate up a little bit, but we're not winded and gasping for breath. So that might be 30 minutes, five times a week. And it may take someone time to work up to that, but that is the ultimate goal. And I should also say that it doesn't have to be 30 minutes altogether. Like you put on the outfit and the shoes and go out for 30 minutes, sometimes broken up throughout the day, 10 minutes, three times a day, something like that. It all adds up and is beneficial, not only for given the individual's history of cancer, but also for prevention of many other chronic diseases. So that's the aerobic exercise. And then another key point is strength training really should be done twice a week. And I think that's one people have a real hard time with. How do I start a strength training program? Do I go to a gym and get a trainer? And, you know, I think it's very daunting for many individuals. And we're fortunate that there's so many free types of exercise videos now on the internet, YouTube. There's so many great apps and resources out there. A lot of these things we can do at home. Even if you don't have weights, you can pick up cans or water jugs or your kids' toys. There's so many different creative ways to exercise at home and to do strength training. And the internet has lots of great resources. And this is so important for building our bones, improving muscle strength, improving muscle function in general, because that can take a hit during cancer treatment. So the aerobic exercise and the strength training are the key parts. And of course, flexibility and balance are important too. But I think it's all really important to help optimize health after cancer treatment. And Simran, I know you're nodding as well, because I know this is an area you're very interested in too. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll also just add on, echo all of that. I'll say for anyone listening who's living with cancer, from a palliative care perspective, when you talk about prognosis and overall outcomes with chemo and aggressive treatments like that, the stronger your body is, the better you're going to tolerate all these treatments and the better your quality of life is going to be throughout all of this. So you know, the latest studies, I believe, showed even as little as 10 minutes of movement a day can benefit your overall outcome. So, and just a quick shout out here, because Amy just ran another Boston Marathon, which is just like amazing to me, (laughs) how she does it with all of everything, all her other hats. But I think for our healthcare colleagues, what's important to know is that research also shows that doctors who practice what they preach, their patients are more likely to also do these healthful lifestyle behaviors. So Amy, you're awesome. (laughs) Oh, thank you. But people, you don't need to run a marathon. Just getting starting with baby steps, 10 minutes a day, as you noted, is great. But thank you for the shout out. Thank you. That's wonderful. So I wanted to add or just really say that these recommendations, especially about exercise, are so encouraging. And they feel also not only you're taking care of your physical health, but it feels like that component of self-care that you've come out of a, a difficult time and then you continue to do this for yourself to optimize your health. Dr. Simran, I mentioned earlier, my question was on anxiety and stress. So we can talk about that. So a diagnosis of cancer certainly comes with it many emotions like fear, anxiety, and stress. And what are some ways that we can help address these concerns? So I think this is, and Amy can probably add on to this, but I think this is a two-part answer. So I think the fear and anxiety that comes with the diagnosis of cancer and then during treatment, the person's life is basically turned upside down. But I think what helps in this particular phase of the cancer journey is that they have a roadmap and it's very clear. They have very close follow-up and appointments and blood work and imaging. And if they're blessed, they have a really good family support system that's kind of carrying them through that journey. And for some people, that may be months. For others, it may be years. But I think what's really important in this phase, and this is, again, where the palliative piece comes in, is naming the elephant in the room and naming the emotion, naming the fear, naming the anxiety and asking really solid questions of like, you know, what is important to you? What are you worried about? What are you hoping for? And it's going to be different for every person, depending on what season of life they're in. Right. And so I think along with that, which is something that I do in my practice, along with that, you have some of the tools we already talked about in lifestyle medicine. I think regardless of whether you're talking about the food you're eating, the way you're moving, the way you're optimizing your sleep, or the specific kind of tools for improving your emotional, mental fitness, all of them have been shown to improve mood and reduce anxiety and depression. So no matter which tool that calls out to them, I think those are all great ways to empower them to take control of those symptoms. But I think in particular, if you're talking about specific structured kind of stress reducing modalities like meditation, we there's an article study that I like to cite that I share about young breast cancer survivors, you know, just eight weeks of a daily meditation practice for them improved their quality of life scores, improved pain, improved fatigue, self-image, sleep disturbances. So again, it doesn't have to be a lot, even just a little bit. And meditation for everyone can look different. As you mentioned, it could be going outside in nature for other people. It could be sitting inside and sitting in silence for 10 minutes and breathing. Or for other people, it could be having a simple gratitude practice. One of the things that really helps me on my journey is Tony Robbins says the antidote to fear is gratitude and you can't have both at the same time. So that I think can be very powerful. I don't know. I'll mention the next part of survivorship, but if anyone wants to comment on that since you know she sees this often. Yeah, I love your answer. This is great. And, you know, we're talking about another, a third pillar of lifestyle medicine, namely stress management, which is, again, so important for this population. And I agree with everything you said. And I think for those listening, if you are a cancer survivor who is dealing with a lot of the stress, anxiety, fear of recurrence, many cancer centers do have programs specifically dedicated to helping individuals with these concerns. I'm fortunate at our cancer center, we have the 
Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine. It's a wonderful eight-week program, which is really dedicated to cancer survivors to help manage fear for currents, anxiety, resilience, learn mindfulness and meditation techniques. A lot of the things Simran just mentioned. And certainly that type of program isn't everywhere, but a lot of cancer centers or in community centers throughout the country might have these types of offerings for cancer survivors. But I think it's really important to take advantage of these offerings. Many of them are virtual now because as Simran noted, you really need to individuals should like identify when they're experiencing these types of symptoms and what are some strategies to best address it. So I think I agree with all your suggestions. And I think the other thing as you're talking about survivorship is it's not as clear a road as it is when you're given the diagnosis and while you're going through treatment, right? I think, and I know this personally because of what I went through with my mom, but also because I'm in a lot of breast cancer support groups. And I hear this very often from women. It's like, you know, you're carried so carefully by your oncologist and your medical team and your family. And then you get to the other side, you ring the bell And it feels like everyone's gone from around you because there's no more roadmap. It's like, okay, I'll see you in three months or I'll see you in six months. Like it's supposed to be really good news, but it sometimes leads to more isolation and more anxiety and more fear, kind of like Amy said. So of course, support groups are super important because like I said, if you know you're not alone and there's other women or other people rather going through what you're going through, that in and of itself can be comforting. But I think again, Again, this is a palliative care physician in me, sorry, but having conversation is so powerful. Like sitting your family down who says, okay, you rang the bell, everything's good. Let's go back to normal, regular scheduled programming to have that conversation and say, I'm not that same person anymore. Like this really changed me. And it's also okay to know that it may take time to find your new normal. It may take time to experiment with things. And a lot of the things that you used to do, you may not do them anymore. You may not need them in your life anymore. And so I think to have the conversation with your family and friends to tell them what you need during this time is super important. Thank you for mentioning the importance of support groups. And that's a conversation that Dr. Commander and I had when she came on previously and spoke about paving the way to wellness. So supporting women after they've gone through their treatments What's the best way for my listeners or anyone who's listening who is a survivor to have access to virtual support groups? That's such a great question. And thank you for giving a shout out to Paving the Path to Wellness. And Simran, you hit on exactly what led me to start this group along with Dr. Beth Brady's and Michelle Tollefson. It was like, I'm seeing my patients. They've been through months of chemo, radiation. They're maybe now taking, let's say, tamoxifen. And I'm like, see you in six months. And to a patient, you know, that's like, who's been through so much, so many intensive medical visits to say, I don't need to come back for six months. Like it's very disconcerting. And as the oncologist, I'm like, well, you don't really have to come here, you know? And I feel like survivorship care, there's such an opportunity. We can do such a better job. That's why we're doing this podcast as a way to bring awareness so we can all think about strategies to improve care, certainly for our breast cancer survivors, but for all 17 million of those cancer survivors who have all kinds of different diagnoses. So you ask a great question, Maya, how can we perhaps make these virtual offerings more available and how do patients find them? And it's a great question because our patients are very savvy and creative and the internet has opened up a wealth of possibilities. So yeah, I know for my own patients, many of them are in Facebook groups specifically dedicated to their own type of breast cancer. That's just one example. Certainly there's communities on Twitter as well and so many other platforms and many other support groups, which now many are meeting virtually. Maybe the pandemic kind of forced that to happen. And maybe that is a good thing that's come out of this very challenging time we've lived through for the past two years. But certainly the paving program that I've been offering through the MDH Cancer Center That was an in-person program for survivorship program for women with breast cancer. And now it's virtual as well. And I hope to be able to expand that further. So I think there are many offerings, but certainly for breast cancer, there are many offerings. But, you know, I have to be honest, I'm not sure if there are 
American Cancer Society is a great resource. The YMCA Live Strong program is a great resource. But for many other cancer diagnoses, you know, I'm not familiar with all the exact programs that might be out there for those individuals. Simran, I'm welcoming your comments as well. I'm thinking of one right now. So for any women that have like female cancers, Bright Pink was a good one. I know they're in the middle of transitioning. I'm a part of the Breasties. They're wonderful for young women because it's mostly women in the ages of 20 to 40. Stupid Cancer, I think that's what it's called, is, (laughs) I hope I'm saying this right, is another one, which if I remember correctly, because I went on there once, they have like tons of lists of different support groups. But I agree with Amy, like nowadays, if you go on Facebook, you can literally find a specific group for your specific cancer or on Instagram or any of these social media platforms. And then I think, you know, just simply talk to your oncologist. A lot of the local cancer centers have groups. And now in the post-pandemic world, I think they are starting to open up again. So there's so much support. You just have to ask. I just want to say we're hitting on a fourth pillar of lifestyle medicine, the importance of social connection. So the support piece is so key as we've been discussing and support certainly from your neighbor, your friend, your partner, your family, but also the support from other individuals who get it, who really get what you just went through. So Maya, we're glad you asked about this too. I've had a couple of individuals like that who come on and didn't have that guidance and support that they wish they had. And so they also work on the preventative end. So they go on and create groups in their communities where they help educate people about the power of nutrition. And I think that's so cool because now suddenly you have people that are on board to support you as well. People that are like-minded and have the same values to prevent or reverse disease. So I think that's great. And then also we have sleep, Dr. Commander, that we can talk about, which is difficult for all of us. But what do we know in terms of the role of sleep for cancer survivors? Thank you for asking. We're making sure we hit all these pillars of lifestyle medicine. So sleep is number five. And we do know from numerous studies that sleep disturbance or other sleep disorders such as insomnia are unfortunately very prevalent in cancer survivors. And, you know, the rates can be between 40 and 70%. And we really are in need of better resources to help this population address this concern. And obviously a major contributing factor is fear of recurrence. Just anecdotally, since we like sharing stories, I mean, many of my patients will say, I wake up at three in the morning and I can't stop thinking about my cancer and whether it could come back. And, you know, it's really scary for people. And how do we best counsel our patients to address that concern? And I'm fortunate that one of my colleagues at the MGH Cancer Center, Dr. Daniel Hall, who's a psychologist, is doing a lot of research specifically on how to manage insomnia and cancer survivors. And there's a lot of interest in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, but he's adapting it for a cancer survivor population. So that's one great example um, of research that's being done to help address sleep disturbance. I know there are actually a number of apps out there, interestingly, that are helping individuals improve their sleep habits. But sleep hygiene is a piece of it, and we can talk about what that means. But the cognitive behavioral therapy piece is really interesting too. And I've been fortunate to learn more about that. Simran, I don't know if you want to give your tips on sleep hygiene. You're probably better at it than me. (laughs) Sleep is one of the things I'm working on too. I think the thing with sleep right now in this, again, this pandemic world we're living in, like we're all in front of screens all day long. And so when it comes to sleep hygiene, and trust me, I am also working on this myself, but like really being mindful about shutting down all your screens, your phone in particular, at least an hour, if not 90 minutes before you're getting ready to wind down. And instead, during that time, find something that really relaxes you. So whether it's mindfulness or music or reading or drinking a nice warm tea or taking a warm shower, whatever it is, finding another alternative to the blue screen that really we know is going to disrupt your sleep. The other thing I found 
personally helpful, but also something that I've heard has helped a lot of my patients who I deal with some of the sickest patients in palliative care. But I usually tell people to keep like a journal at their bedside. A lot of times people can't sleep because they have racing thoughts and they just keep ruminating on the same what ifs and fears and anxieties. And so take a journal and just like whatever thought is coming, like it's almost like a brain dump, you know, before you go to bed and then taking some deep cleansing breaths after that can really help calm the mind down so that you can start to fall asleep. I was thinking, Dr. Simran, as you were saying that, giving us those tips that, you know, the last couple of years going on three years of having this pandemic, probably a lot of individuals either were not tested or screened for cancer or weren't able to have access to treatments. I happen to have met a couple who just before the pandemic hit was able to fly to Colombia to do his treatments for prostate cancer and is surviving now and is doing well. So that's very interesting. Can we talk a little bit about some of the limitations and what the numbers may look like this year and also substance abuse and why it's important for us to talk about this topic and the risk factors that are still associated with cancer I'm happy to address that. And I'll let you, Simran, address avoidance of risky substances. So we get all six pillars covered in this podcast today. But Maya, I'm so glad you asked that question because that's an area that's of great importance to me. And actually, Simran and I, along with Nigel Brockton from the AICR, did a webinar last October for ACLM specifically focused on lifestyle medicine and breast cancer, but also why screening is so important and what's happened during the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. During the pandemic, I'm certainly starting in March of 2020 until the end of May of 2020, all sort of non-essential medical testing was essentially canceled and discontinued per the CDC. So mammograms, colonoscopies, all of these routine important screening tests were canceled. So we saw a significant drop-off, of course, in screening testing. And I would say just in my own practice now, we're still trying to catch up. I mean, I still see patients every day who will acknowledge, oh, I missed my mammogram in 2020. And finally I got in and what if I had done it? You know, like we don't like the what ifs, but it is really hard to have those conversations with patients. So I guess to your listeners, you know, Cancer Survivor Month is really an opportunity to celebrate and honor individuals who've been through cancer treatment, but also a reminder to all of us, get that mammogram. That is self-care, taking care of yourself. Take that time off to get your mammogram. Nobody likes getting a colonoscopy, but schedule it anyway. You know, your pap smear, discuss with your doctor the role of PSA screening for prostate cancer if you meet criteria. I can go on and on, but it's really an important wake up to get back to all those important screening tests that may have been neglected over the past two years. And I'll I'll just take a moment to throw in there, you know, if you are a loved one of a cancer survivor, June is a great month to really dive into your family history and figure out like, I'm the daughter of a survivor or son of a survivor. Am I at higher risk? Is there a genetic component? Should we talk to a genetic counselor? That's also another conversation I think that needs to have more awareness. So in an ideal world, how can we make the tools for lifestyle medicine more available to cancer survivors? The first step is we shared several evidence-based sources today. So I think going there, exploring, they have beautiful, colorful websites. So going there, exploring the information, learning yourself. And like Amy said, you know, it's possible that you bring this information about a whole food plant-based diet or whatever to your doctor, and they may not have ever heard about the evidence behind it. But I'll tell you one thing, doctors love science and they love to learn. So if you bring them the evidence, most of them will look at it and you don't know, you may change the practice of your doctor. So that's what I say. Like every story has the potential to change someone else's life and it could even be your doctor's. So I think we all learn from each other. And so But those are the first stepping stones, I would say, to really get the information of lifestyle medicine out there. And I know, of course, there's institutions like ACLM who are really, you know, when you talk about the medical system, trying to fix it from the inside out, like they're involved with medical schools and health systems across the U.S. And they're just doing a fantastic job. So I think we just address it from all angles. Thank you. 
And finally, I don't know if you wanted to add a comment to that, uh, Dr. Commander. I just wanted to give a shout out to you, Maya, just the fact that you have this amazing podcast that covers so many important aspects of lifestyle medicine to really reach such a broad audience. And I I think that is so important. And thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you so much. It's encouraging. It's you, the guests that come on and share this with the listeners. And not long ago, we had a survivor of colorectal cancer survivor. And because of that, she gave us tips on how we can test for that and screen for that. And so it's just us hearing more about this, having the conversation and the exposure from the doctors, but also from the survivors that these conversations are what convince the rest of us to take care of our health. And so finally, do you have a final message for survivors? And what links would you like to share with my listeners for them to learn about your programs or your website, social media, anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? My final message is that you all are just incredible. Um, And what I think Amy will speak for herself, but Amy and I both want you to know is that there are so many tools available when it comes to your lifestyle to reduce your risk of a recurrence and you don't have to live in fear, but there, there's so much you can do to take action. And you can find me at coachsimranmd.com or my Instagram handle is at drsimran.maholtra. And I don't expect you all to know how to spell that. So maybe you can just share it in your bio. Thank you for that question. I'm going to read you a quote that is very inspiring to me and I share with my patients. And I think this is a great thing for cancer survivors who are listening to contemplate. I'm not sure if you've heard of Gabe Brunwald. So I'm a runner, as we alluded to earlier. Gabe was a really amazing professional distance runner who unfortunately at a very young age was diagnosed with a very rare type of cancer involving her liver. But she adopted this really amazing attitude during her treatment and how she faced a lot of the struggles that we've discussed. And this is her quote, cancer can stop you from doing a lot of things. I'm well aware of that, but I'm more interested in what cancer can't stop me from doing. Here's to finding out. So I love that sentiment. And I think that's a great quote for us to conclude on. And I hope that provides inspiration to many who are listening. Definitely. Thank you so much, Dr. Commander and Dr. Simran for taking the time to really encourage all our listeners to have this awareness and to support our survivors. So thank you again. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. You can also head on over to podinbox.com forward slash HLS to leave me a voicemail. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.